What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. Really enjoying doing this podcast. I hope you're enjoying it as well. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And this week, we're going to be talking about something very cool. I have a great friend, John Rees, who uh, has been doing a lot with 18th century history over the years. He's a great interpreter, and I wanted to have him on to discuss his book, They Were Good Soldiers, African Americans Serving in the Continental Army, 1775 to 1783. A fascinating look at black soldiers in this time period and the struggles that they faced, uh, some of the victories that they helped win, and uh, the legacy of their participation in that conflict. Uh, joining us also is uh, a very good friend of mine and another excellent historical interpreter, uh, just an excellent guy. Marvin Alonzo Greer is along for this one. So we had this uh, three-person panel, really, my, uh, myself moderating and keeping things going, and then two excellent historians along for the ride to talk about John's book and to talk about this legacy. And uh, it was a great time. We really enjoyed it. It went over an hour. We had some questions from the live stream audience which came in. We had some just amazing discussions. The narrative uh, from the book is uh, compelling and it's very easy to read. And I'd love for you to go over onto Amazon and pick that book up. Uh, again, it is called uh, They Were Good Soldiers. African Americans serving in the Continental Army, 1775 to 1783, and it's by John Rees, R-E-E-S. Uh, again, John is here to talk about that book. Marvin is here to give us some background as well, and it was just a fantastic discussion. I hope that you enjoy it. Without further ado, let's get into it. I have uh, two good friends on who know much more about the 18th century than I do, and I'm so glad that they're here. Uh, we just uh, got through a storm where I lost power, and I'm so glad that we got <laughs> the technical stuff out of the way and got power on so we can be here with all of you this evening. Uh, first up, we have John Rees, who is the author of the book that we're going to talk about tonight, which is also the title of our presentation uh, they were good soldiers, African-Americans, serving in the Continental Army, 1775 to 1783. John, thank you so much for being here, my friend. And uh, and uh, also joining us for a second time uh, is my great friend Marvin Alonzo Greer. You may remember him from our review of the National Museum of the U.S. Army. Uh, and I'm so happy to have Marvin back for his input on this subject as well. Thanks, Marvin, for being here. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. I'm very excited about this subject because, uh, you know, the the for a lot of us, we haven't touched much on the revolution since high school. And uh, for me, that was over 20 years ago. So I kind of remember some of it. Uh, but this is a subject which I believe we really need to cover at this time. And it's one that's barely covered. And John, I'm so glad that you are able to lend your expertise uh, to this 
before we get really deep into uh, the background of the book and into the book itself, I would like to start out the way I usually do with people who come on. And I'll start with John first, and then we'll go to Marvin. Uh, John, where uh, did this passion for history start with you? Uh, it probably started, oh, preteen. I mean, I, I, I read a lot. I, I read a lot of biographies, um, some novels, but a lot of biographies. Eventually started reading a lot of history. Uh, started playing with my my brother's uh, Alamo set and Civil War sets and, and setting up the Battle of Waterloo, you know, with, with those. Um, uh, I think I got into the World War II. What they said, that they said, you know, you're, you know, you're getting old when all of a sudden you have a, an interest in, in World War II. Um, I was interested in World War II as a, as a young teenager. And then I went on to Napoleonics and then I went to the Civil War. And then I went on eventually because I got into revolutionary living history. Um, and there were a lot of questions that people couldn't answer. Uh, I decided to start doing research on my own. Um, and I lived at that time, I lived within five miles of the David Library of the American Revolution. Um, I live in the same place, but that's, that's just moved, uh, which had film and books and uh, microfiche and all kinds of great stuff. Um, and I decided to focus at that point on the revolution. I mean, I hadn't written anything up to that point except for school term papers. And, uh, I recently wrote a history of the unit I was doing, I was a member of the, the original unit. But as I would do that, I would go through either the documents uh, or my, microfilm and would find all this information um, on soldiers' shelter, soldiers' food, uh, women with the army, and of course, eventually uh, blacks with the army, black soldiers with the army. Um, and I, luckily, you know, I, I, I had the, 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 uh, the forethought to, to just set all, all the stuff aside, even though I wasn't writing about it yet. And eventually I had enough uh, on different subjects to, um, well, since then I've been writing on, again, soldiers' shelter, soldiers' food, women with the army. Uh, and eventually I started early in the 2000s, I, I figured I had enough information on black continental soldiers to start writing on my own. Hmm. Um, and that started with two, two articles. One, one was an overview. And they both basically form the foundation of the book. I mean, they're much changed, but, uh, and then that was actually published in a couple of journals. Um, and then the second one I wrote, which is, a, which was only, uh, online, it's, uh, black soldiers in Southern continental regiments, um, which, I mean, the subject of black soldiers in the revolutionary armies. And if you narrow it down more black soldiers in the continental army, not that many people know about the, 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 the subject. Um, but when you think about black soldiers in Southern Continental regiments, that's, you know, if you know about the Civil War and you know about slavery in the South, it just doesn't make sense. So it was, so I, I wanted to do an entire article on that. Um, and the numbers, the numbers of black soldiers in Southern regiments in Virginia and North Carolina, especially, uh, rivaled those in New England. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then eventually uh, an editor just contacted me on uh, LinkedIn and said, um, I posted the second article and he said, uh, would you want to do a book on this subject or, or another subject you might want to do? And I, I probably thought about five minutes and, and then, uh, then thought, um, I want to do it on black, black continental closures. Uh, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Marvin, I can't remember if we discussed this on the, the last time you were with me or not, but I would uh, love for the audience to know where the passion for history started with you. And until this point, um, <clears throat> 
I'm not sure. I don't know if we covered that or not on the last uh, on our last chat. Uh, but it really came, I think, from from my ancestors. My grandmother Hazel Alton, um, my maternal grandmother. She was an amazing storyteller and family historian, keeper of all of the family history. On my uh, my grandmother's husband. I mean, my grandmother's uh, yeah husband. Uh, my grandfather, his sister, uh, Eunice uh, Alton. Uh, Thomas, uh, she was an, she was a, a librarian, and um, she was another great genealogist and oral historian. Uh, I don't know if I come from a family of griots and griots of the African tradition, West African tradition of yeah. being oral historians and passing on the history through the um, through the oral tradition. So I don't know if I come from a family of griots. Um, however, uh, I definitely know those two women in my family were immensely um, important in my self-discovery and falling in love with history uh, because they really taught me to taught me to fall in love with my family to uh, to fall in love with uh, my genealogy and where I came from and obviously they they couldn't go back to the revolution um, they could just go back to what their living memory was and the stories some of the stories they heard but they really kind of inspired that passion in me to want to research more um, because as almost everyone probably on this call um, or watching, will tell you that it's lacking to hear or see black faces in history textbooks um, mm -hmm. outside of slavery, MLK, um, Harriet Tubman. You might get Frederick Douglass in there occasionally, uh, but the unknown uh, enslaved person, and then, MLK, uh, then Harriet Tubman escaped, MLK, the Civil War happened, MLK gave I have a dream speech and we're good. Um, <laughs> And so for me, it was really good growing up hearing the stories of my of my ancestors who did amazing things and survived uh, Jim Crow and slavery. Um, and so as I got older, um, I just started researching and studying and reading up more. Uh, and eventually, actually, I was after I graduated from college uh, as a history major and started working at Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, I was doing more genealogy. I stumbled across my Revolutionary War ancestors, our ancestor, who was not African American, but um, uh, he was in the, um, the Virginia and the North Carolina militia, and so he would have seen black men in uniform. Um, and I've always wondered, like, what would his thoughts of having black descendants be? Uh, he was a he was an enslaver. Um, his son was an enslaver who fathered black children. Um, and so for me, that's what that, that the passion came from and that interest is really finding my history and then also wanting to share that with other uh, black Americans who might not be able to trace their lineage as far back. Um, but we can, how can I use either my family or the research that I find to highlight the, um, our ancestors who may have been nameless? And then also uh, meeting people like John who can actually give names to some of these ancestors and say, hey, this this man fought in this regiment. We don't know who, where, what happened to him after the war, but at least say he's a representative of our ancestors who fought back um, and fought to survive. Mm, yeah, that's fantastic because I, I've, I've seen uh, all the interpretive impressions both of you have done and the way you teach history in that way. And as someone who used to do that a lot, uh, you know, I admire that and I admire it. Your capabilities in that way you're, you're two of the interpreters who i love to follow and and i admire a lot for that 
um, when it comes to 18th century stuff, it's it's all a little bit foreign to me because I've I come from the lineage. It's like we landed in 1697, and you don't hear anything until the Revolution, and then all then I found an ancestor in North Carolina who owned a person, and I had no idea we had that in my lineage, and he's the only one that I can find. So this period is kind of an awkward one for me because I'm trying to figure out what's going on in, in my family. And then on top of that, you know, these these stories of of black colonial soldiers or black soldiers in in both forces at that time is really a, an interesting and deep subject. And I think this is a, a, some of the perfect times to be discussing it, which is why I wanted to have both of you on uh, this evening. But uh, one of the most famous people I remember hearing about is is uh, Billy Lee with George Washington. And and I know, Marvin, you you have portrayed Billy Lee, correct, in an interpretive mode. Um, what was that like for you uh, to do that kind of an interpretation on top of your Colonial Williamsburg interpretation as well? Yeah, so I've portrayed William Lee on a number of occasions. I think he's a really fascinating uh, person. Um, again, he was another storyteller and griot of sorts. Um, Oftentimes, I think he's overlooked and people just say he's a really cool person because he is Washington's enslaved waiting man and look at him kind of as an object. But and no, a lot of people don't really study the story of who uh, William Lee was as a person. Um, uh, although Washington is, is listed as uh, known as the best horseman of the 18th century and of the American Revolutionary time period, uh, Washington notes that William Lee could outride him. Um, and he would like dash into the um, like headlong into the into the uh, into the brush, um, riding wildly, uh, chasing after foxes and things of that nature. He was an amazing hunter. And so, if if Washington, who's known as being the best horseman, says that William Lee could outride him, who who was actually the best horseman in America at that time? Mm. Um, <clears throat> And so I think William uh, William Lee also helps us kind of really understand the lives of black equestrian uh, equestrians at that time. You think of like jockeys and um, like the Kentucky Derby uh, today uh, during the Revolutionary time period. Uh, it was mainly enslaved um, and some free, but mainly enslaved black men that were the jockeys and the horsemen of the of, of the era. Um, and so, look, kind of looking at William Lee's life um, of all the things that the things that he saw, the travels that he went with Washington, the things he was exposed to, um, the injuries that he sustained. He broke both of his kneecaps um, during uh, and uh, was pretty much like he he couldn't walk at the end of the war. And um, oh, sorry, by the end of it, towards the end of his life, he uh, Washington dies before him. Uh, but by the time uh, Washington dies. Uh, William Lee is pretty much um, a, a shoemaker and shining shoes at, um, at one of the enslaved cabins. And he's kind of given his like freedom, but he can't go anywhere. He's, um, and I think it's really symbolic of the, um, symbolic of the, the founding fathers and the friends of the constitution and how they viewed enslaved people in this very paternalistic way of, I'm gonna use you up and I'm going to use you until I can run you into the ground to you. You can't do me a service anymore. And I'm going to say, hey, pat you on the head, say, good job. You're now free. Go off and mm -hmm. 
do something. I will, I'll like, it's a very paternalistic way of looking at Lee, but he, a, a lot of things we know about Washington, especially in his later life, are from stories from William Lee. A journalist would come and visit um, the slave cabin where he lived and interview him and ask questions about, um, about, about what it was like to, uh, um, to, to, be enslaved by Washington and, and be with him. And so I think they, these gentlemen had a very intimate connection. Um, I won't necessarily call it friendly, but when, you, when you've uh, been owned by someone and been in contact with someone for almost your entire life, uh, Washington purchased him when he was, and, and his brother, uh, when, he, when he was a child, a teenager, I believe. Um, and he was enslaved by Washington until his, almost until his death. Um, and so uh, William Lee, I think, is a really fascinating character because he, he witnessed the revolution. Um, although he was not technically a soldier, um, he experienced battle. He was shot at by the British who some um, at distance because of the way he was dressed, sometimes thought that he was, uh, that he was Washington. Um, and especially with the way he rode um, and the clothes that he was wearing at that time, he, uh, he's cut such a figure. And so, um, yeah, I think William Lee is, I think, a good example of Black equestrians of the time um, who are not necessarily soldiers, which we'll be talking about today, but accompanying um, uh, officers on both sides. Um, and I'm, since we'll be talking primarily about the soldiers, for every, I would say definitely for every one uh, Black soldier, at least, there's at least five um, Black people, men and women, who are accompanying the military, if not more. But at least, yeah. um, uh, but at least five people, that are, uh, five African Americans that are, or black people, who brought from Africa, who were um, were accompanying the military on both sides um, during the during the conflict. Hmm. Hmm. And Billy Lee is interesting too because uh, I mean, this ties in with what you're, what you're saying. There's probably nobody closer to Washington during the war. Right. Or, or, and probably even closer to Washington during the time when he was when he was actively, uh, you know, riding and fox hunting um, before the war. I mean, that's a, that's a real shared experience. Um, it's 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 just a, you know, it's just boggles the mind because he 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 was enslaved, um, but he was so close to Washington. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if he if he could if we could have his story just verbatim, that would be amazing. Um, somebody really needs to write a novel. <laughs> yeah. to try to try to try to somebody really good to try to get to get that out there. But uh, but I think I think, that's, I think that's another fascinating part of, of William Lee's life is that people interview him. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's lots of interviews with him, or yeah. but they're never about his story. They're, yeah, tell us, tell us about Washington. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a there's a. A probably a probably apocryphal story of of uh, Billy Lee or William Lee at uh, Battle of Monmouth, um, which talks about him with the rest of the servants. And I think Lee had a Lee has supposed supposed to have a spyglass was up in a tree um, and was shot at by the British. And it was basically used as almost like a min, like a minstrelly, you know, anecdote. Um, but you know, it does show that Lee Lee was there during during the action. Um, you know, so the, you mean some of the details of the story may be for the audience, but uh, but he he was there and he he was he was right in the thick of it, mm-hmm. um, that which is really amazing to think, really amazing. Um, when uh, John, when I first 
got a copy of your book. Uh, I, I thumbed through it really quickly because I only had like five minutes to look because I had another <laughs> interview going on. Uh, and I noticed right away the, the how it's laid out. And, and I really appreciated the way you laid it out by state, which we'll go into later. But you started off talking about uh, the Black experience from the British perspective and, and whether they be in a loyalist regiment or, or other regiments at the time. Uh, how, what was that experience like for uh, black men who, who were involved with the British military, since we hear so much about the American colonial experience, how about from the British perspective that maybe we didn't know beforehand or that my listeners may not have known beforehand? That's, that's a, I mean, that's, I, I needed to have that juxtaposition with, you know, what, what the black experience was on the, on the crown side as, as opposed to the, to the uh, cause for independence. Um, it just, it just had to be there. Um, Early in the war, uh, the first first the first large event that really affected blacks um, was when uh, Lord Dunmore, uh, Governor of Virginia, uh, basically took advantage of the situation. He was raiding. He was raiding. He had left Williamsburg. He was raiding along the coast in British ships and raiding plantations. And he was and he was uh, both freeing slaves and also slaves were were, were joining joining his troop force. And he, so he was collecting a lot of, you know, escaped blacks. Um, and at a certain point, he, uh, late summer, 1775, he decided to form them into a regiment, which was uh, the Ethiopian regiment or Dun Dunmore's Ethiopian regiment. So for a year, um, there was a regiment of, of all black soldiers. Now they had, they had white Officers, I'm pretty sure they had white and uh, non-commissioned officers because they were, they were all without military experience. Um, they they were at the Battle of Great Bridge, even though I don't think they really saw action. Uh, I think they were in, in a supporting force, even though there were there were some captured. Um, and then they basically took part in raids along the coast. Uh, and at a certain point, sometime during the uh, the winter, early spring of '76, um, they started getting really hit, hit with uh, smallpox and probably other diseases, probably typhoid and um, and other diseases. And they lost they lost a lot of, a lot of the the black soldiers in the in the Ethiopian regiment. Now that probably the main reason was that like European soldiers were pretty well not proof, but they they were they 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 had probably had smallpox and other diseases very young. Whereas in America, you, you really weren't that, ex, weren't that exposed. And if you were, if you were in an enslaved population, you were even, you were even closer to even more. Um, you know, you may have traveled from, from your, your home to work on, in other places, but still you were really controlled, really, really clustered. So you were, they were, they were really susceptible to uh, smallpox and other diseases, even though there were, is, is a record that they, that uh, Dunmore uh, did at least start to inoculate some of the, uh, some of the blacks against uh against um, uh, smallpox. Uh, towards the end of the summer, they were basically forced, they decided to, to leave Virginia. They, were, they really weren't accomplishing a lot. Plus the, the, the Ethiopian regiment had been pretty much decimated by disease. Um, I think they had at least uh, 300 or more blacks that they took north with them. Um, probably about 100 to 150 were probably with the Ethiopian regiment. On the, all, all the rest were were freed slaves and women and children. Um, and when they got back up to to uh, either I think it was either I think it was Staten Island, they they basically disbanded 
uh, the Ethiopian regiment. So it was, it was only a regiment for one year. Um, and some of those men probably went into the Black Pioneers and the Black Pioneers served pretty much through the rest of the war. Uh, not really under arms. They were, they were, they built fortifications. They, they uh, cleaned up camps. They built roads. There was, it was basically a labor organization. Um, and then in early 70, I think it was 77, uh, William Howe came out with this, this uh, announcement saying that uh, he wanted all, all blacks um, discharged from loyalist regiments. So after, after one year of having a, having a black loyalist regiment, Hal turns around and says, we, we want them all discharged. We, we don't want black serving in loyalist regiments. Um, the thing is, the joke was on him because uh, you had loyalist militia, which, which wasn't included. So loyalist militia had, had blacks in the ranks. Uh, you had loyalist, loyalist irregular forces, like the, um, uh, there was a man named uh, Titus. Uh, they called him Colonel Ty. Supposedly, he, served, he actually served in the Loyalist Regiment, even though he was in New Jersey. He had, he had run away from his master. And like I said, there's a lot of stories. I don't have, I don't have any proof, but that he actually served in the, Loyal, in the, the uh, Ethiopian Regiment. But later on, in uh, about 1779, he, uh, he took charge of what they called the Black Brigade that was operating out of Sandy Hook Lighthouse, um, which is uh, um, Sandy Hook, which is right, right on the coast of, uh, of uh, New Jersey, right across the water from New York. Um, and he was the commander of that force. I mean, he, he didn't have a, they called him Colonel Tide. He, he didn't have an actual military, you know, uh, commission, mm -hmm. but, but he was the commander of an integrated force of loyalists that they called the Black Brigade. Um, mm -hmm. And they, and they basically uh, operated pretty well for at least two years until, until Ty was uh, killed in action. And then after that, they kept on operating, but they weren't as effective after his death. Um, mm -hmm. And then you move you move to the south. I mean, you uh, blacks weren't really operating under arms in British or regular loyalist regiments, and the, the loyalist regiments I'm speaking of are the ones who were accepted by the crown. Um, but they were operating as, as musicians. They were oper operating as, in the wagon corps, um, and of course, musicians they they would carry a sword, so they, they were under arms. It's just that they were they were musicians, yeah. and. Uh, and as you go to the south, the, the, the Hessian regiments had had some uh, some blacks in them. Um, again, they were they were uh, either pack horsemen or they were carters. Uh, you know, they're, they're basically wagoners. Mm -hmm. um, but then in 1782, you have uh, around Charleston, you have the commander uh, in place, the British commander, uh, uh, basically okay the the uh, the formation of this. It was called they were called the Black Dragoons. Um, they were all escaped slaves. They were all black, and I'm talking about the officers, non-commissioned officers, and all the troopers. They were all black. Um, they weren't a huge unit, but they were they were pretty effective. Uh, and I I've I've gone through uh, Pennsylvania uh, soldiers' diaries, um, and there's several mentions of the black dragoons in there. They were uh, they 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 were all over the place, and they were pretty good cavalrymen. Um, you know, by that point in the war, 1782, 83. But mostly 82, uh, you know, the war was winding down. Yorktown had happened, but still, it's, it's fascinating to know that uh, that there was an all-black, a totally black unit operating in um, in the South. There were also there was at least at least one African American in uh, Butler's Rangers on the frontier, and Butler's Rangers was a recognized recognized loyalist corps. So there were 
there were some there were some uh, except, exceptions to to Hal's rule, especially especially as the war went on later in the later on. Um, but it is fascinating, and then you and then you have the the uh, in 1779 you have um, the Philipsburg declara declaration by uh, uh, Henry Clinton, who was then commander in chief of the British forces, and he basically decreed that he would accept any and all uh, blacks who escaped from the rebels into into his lines. They would they would immediately be free. Um, they would be, uh, you know, they could work as they wished, they could live as they wished. Um, and in that same declaration, he stated that any, any black soldiers taken under arms um, and captured in the from the rebel army would be immediately enslaved. So hmm. on the one hand, he's, he's freeing blacks. On the other hand, he's taking, you know, if you're fighting for the cause of independence, he's, he's, he's going to threaten to enslave you. I, I don't know many, I really don't know of any instances where that happened except for one pension declaration. One, one Rhode Island uh, black soldier talks about being captured in 17, early 1781 and says he was, he was enslaved, he was uh, enslaved um, and served as a slave for quite a while. Um, so it's likely that it, that it actually did happen, that, that they actually occasionally did back up uh, Clinton's threat. Um, so it's and then and then after the war, uh, there was the uh, the Book of Negroes. Um, I, th I believe there was one that was made out of Charleston too, which was the last city evacuated in the South. But the the best known is the one out of New York. Uh, Washington wanted all the all the freed slaves. He wanted them because they were property. He wanted them all back. He wanted them all returned. And at that time, Carlton was commander in chief, and Carlton said, "No, no, we're not going to do it." But he was negotiating, so he basically made up made up this the, the, these books of the book of Negroes that listed all their names, where where they came from. Um, it's actually really, really, uh, it's a really cool um, uh, resource. And actually, I think in Canada, they actually did a mini series on the book of Negroes. And, yeah, and, really good. And, and, yeah, and I, I haven't seen it yet. Um, and to, and to bring these stories to life. Wow. And when push came to shove, you know, Carlton refused to return. Yeah return them and they went off to Canada, they went, some went off, a lot went off to Canada, some went off to the West Indies, some were reestablished in, uh, in uh, Sierra Leone, I think it was, um, yeah. in Africa. Um, a lot of times they weren't treated well, like in Canada, the, 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 the black immigrants were, were, were often not treated well at all. Um, but, you know, they were free, uh, you know, they had their lives. Um, and they had a new start. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, just the entire story is, is really, really interesting. It, it, it really is. Marvin, since you saw that series out of Canada, do you want to touch on that? Because I've never seen that one before. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a great series. Um, I would definitely uh, recommend watching it. Um, I think it might be four parts, but it really covers um, this woman. It's a, obviously a fictionalized um, story that covers this woman who's a storyteller of Rio uh, from uh, being uh, captured. She was born free in Africa, was captured, um, and it's her life through the transatlantic slave trade in the Mayafa um, here to the, the colonies. And then she, uh, and then her life uh, growing up here in, um, in the colonies and experiencing the war. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. is in it. Um, no. <laughs> um, 
and um, and I think he he plays oh he he portrays a, a an American uh, uh, patriot um, in quotes or a person who's loyal to the American um, cause of independence, um, while she um, and most black people in the film are uh, side with the British. Um, I would say uh, costuming wise, not the best, um, <laughs> but um, but I think it really does um, it really does speak to. Um, this idea of what this time period was about um, and some of the, in, the issues that are going on. Uh, John mentioned um, the issues in Canada. Um, you're, t you're taking uh, former Americans, black and white, and just putting them in Canada. So you're, you're still the same prejudices, the people that were enslavers in the United States or people that were overseers in the United States or still harbor those white supremacist beliefs those don't disappear putting them in Canada. Um, and so if you're a former enslaver, slaver in, um, in what becomes the United States, you're now transported to Canada, you don't have enslaved people with you. Like the, you now want to subjugate those, uh, those black bodies that are, that are there. Um, and they really do highlight that, that struggle. And they also talk about going back to Africa where some people, uh, where she was able to, to, um, to, uh, to travel back to, in her journey um <clears throat> uh and so i think that's a it's a really great resource to kind of uh to introduce people to that, that idea of the book of negroes and what was what it was what it was about um and especially because it's based on the story of of Ogrio, who's telling the story of her journey um and based on some of the, uh, the evidence that they have of people's experiences um that that were black loyalists during the uh, during the era. Um, now I did have um, like I think well uh, General Clinton um, uh, was freeing people I think in the uh, or had the book of Negroes in the um, in like the northern colonies. Uh, the the evidence um, and the documentation from what was going on in um, as they were evacuating Charleston um, is. Oh, sorry, was it Charleston or Savannah? Yes, Charleston, yeah. Charleston. Yeah, that was, that was the last city, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Charleston, I think, was um, horrific. Really? Uh, yeah, the, the black pioneers that were there that were actually that built the pontoon boats mm -hmm. um, were then told to stay on shore as the British cut the pontoon boats. Um, so the, the pontoon bridge, and they, they started breaking away. And so you can imagine you have these black men who have liberated themselves, taken up arms or the axe, whatever, they've now allied themselves with, with the enemy. You have angry um, uh, now Americans that, that want to re-enslave them and do God knows what with them. Uh, you're now at the mercy of, um, of, uh, of these people who are enraged. And so um, there's evidence of these uh, these men and women jumping into the water, trying to swim after the um, the, the boats, and the British pulling out um, um, hatchets and axes and chopping off the hands of people um, and swords and um, and chopping off the hands of people trying to to get aboard the ships um, uh, to prevent them from from going. Uh, and so I think the. There was no real standardized. It wasn't like the, during the Civil War, where the Emancipation Proclamation said, "This is the policy." Yeah. Um, for those people who are new to the subject, imagine it's like the early American. If you're more familiar with the Civil War, 
early American Civil War where some where the future slave law is still in, in effect. Mm -hmm. the, the federal government law says you have to return people. Some, some people's uh, personal morals and beliefs said, you know what, I don't agree with slavery or I don't agree with the institution, so I'm going to help you out. Other people said, no, I'm going to return you. The American Revolution is a little bit more complex because um, you had the British who uh, you had the British who uh, who were still practicing slavery, uh, maybe not in England itself, but in the colonies. Obviously, they still allowed it. Uh, so you had some British officers who were freeing people, some British officers who uh, were not freeing people, uh, and some, and then other British officers who were using them as a chance to gain wealth. Uh, enslaved people were a commodity. They were livestock. They were considered property. So if you did not, if you didn't have much wealth and you came across someone's plantation, you could claim those people as now your property um, and sell them. So you could sell them to a patriot. You could sell them to another British. You could sell them really to anyone. Um, and then after the war, we, there is evidence of um, some of the people that were taken down to the Caribbean, to Jamaica, to the Bahamas, um, being sold. Some people were, let, were set free. Some people were um, were sold back into slavery or into slavery. Um, so I think that I think that 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 adds the complexity of this experience of what's going on with, with Black people during this time period. Um, I do have a question, John, about uh, the Black dragoons. Do you know if they were uniformed or not? And if so, uh, how were they uniformed? I don't. There's two people who have done done articles on them. Um, Finally, I finally found them, and, and they're, they're actually very good articles. The best, I think the best one is by Todd Braisted, Um and I can send it to you. I think it was published in the uh, uh, Journal of the American Revolution uh, online, uh, Don Haggis' uh, online journal. Um, the other one was a chapter in a book on uh, cavalry in, in, the, in the Southern campaigns. Um, okay. I think it was Jim, Jim Pykush, I think, wrote that one. Uh, I, I can send you both of them. I don't think they, I don't think they address how they were uniformed. Don, Don Triani pictures them as being like really well uniformed, uh, a, a, a bearskin cap, and you know, looking really great. I, I have a feeling they probably wasn't. They probably had, just like Dunmore's regiment had had basically twenty uh, sixth regiment uh, regimentals. They, they were eventually issued those. Um, and again, Trani did a, has done a nice uh, a nice image of, of one of them. Um, I have a feeling they were probably giving British uh, British coats, maybe cavalry jackets, maybe stable jackets. I don't know. They might have might have had leather caps. Um, I I don't think they were as spiffy as as, as Trani makes them makes them out to be. But it could be wrong uh, because I, I, actually, I actually don't think there was much there is much information on how they're uniform. Um, but it's it's an interesting subject. I, I wish we knew more. Um, but I, like I said, I can I can send you those articles. They're, they're pretty cool. Um, and and to get back to the to enslave enslaved blacks, uh, the British didn't they didn't free slaves out of you know the kindness of their heart out of the that they were avowed abolitionists. I mean, even though they they did they did abolish slavery was the late eighteenth early nineteenth century, and then you know basically tried to stop the slave trade. Um, they did it. It was a pragmatic move. I mean, it was it was to hurt it was to hurt the rebels. I mean, that, that's that's what it was about. The fact that they 
at least in part, um, the fact that they did they did end up, you know, letting a lot of blacks go with them and and, and go go into into freedom. Um, I mean, it's that's you know you can't you can't take it away from the from the British uh, right there. Now to bring the French into it, my my friend uh, Bob Seelig, who is who is an excellent historian, he he speaks and uh, speaks and reads um, French and German, so he he has a real real leg up in in the revolutionary period. He's come across accounts of uh, of French officers basically, um, you know, taking on slaves, you know, just kind of. Uh, glomming onto them, not, not paying for them. And then eventually, you know, they take them as servants and, and probably eventually, eventually selling them. One of them actually might mention about that, that, you know, it's, uh, you know, he can make uh, like a, a good penny off of them. So the, so the French were doing it too. Yeah. Like um, it was a, it was a profitable thing. You, yeah, um, yeah. you, you yeah. promise the person, you, you promise, you, you're giving the person food. You're like, Hey, at the end of this war, when we win, you'll be free. This person doesn't know you from, from Tom's house cat. Um, all they know is they're getting, they might be getting a tip here and there. They get, they're probably getting new clothing, and then you double cross them. Whether you win or lose the war, you and you sell them. Like there's no, there's no due process. Right. There's yeah. No, you can't right. take them to court. Uh, whether and that's mm -hmm. um, there was a, there's a, there's you, there's runaway ads uh, that I've come across where. Um, where people say that they've escaped from a British officer, or they say that they were captured by a British officer and they've escaped from his uh, from his care. Um, well, they were with the French and they escaped from the French. Um, and so it's really interesting to see uh, to see the um, how um, how also the primary source of uh, runaway ads how enslaved people are are documenting themselves and, yeah. and telling mm -hmm. telling their own story. We can go on from, from those sources, right? One of my uh, one of my Canadian followers is in the chat and says one of the first race rides happened in Shelburne, Birchtown, over conditions 1784, she believes. And then we're going back to, like Marvin said, same people with the same prejudices are going to a different place just because they cross over into Canada doesn't mean that that goes away. You know, yeah. it's yeah. I, I I love you Canadians. You're nice people. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, but but when you're when you're taking someone who believes that way from South Carolina or whatever, and you're plopping them in in uh, Newfoundland or 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 Upper Upper Canada, those feelings aren't going to aren't going to change so much. And uh, John, as we go through uh, your book itself, you go into different states and how they uh, utilized. Uh, black troops in their ranks. Uh, we actually have uh, Hillary Delaney says that she uh, was proud to help get a marker for Daniel Golf uh, in the Virginia line, and and you have a chapter on each state, including Virginia, in in the book. Uh, how did you acquire that information, and was there any colony which was kind of hard to find information on? And you know some of the things that you found. There were a couple of colonies that were hard to find, um, hard to find information on. Um, but but the, the way I went into it is I, I basically just, I just thought it would make sense to, after an overview and then a discussion of numbers, um, to basically go state by state. Uh, that way, if somebody wanted to access the book and they were just interested in one state, they could go right to that state and look. Um, I wanted to base it on pension accounts. In the 19th century, uh, the federal government instituted uh, the first one. It was in 1818. It was a pension uh, act. Um, it was for revolutionary veterans. Um, and it was open to all revolutionary veterans, black and white and Indian, um, any of them. So they, they didn't. 
discriminate except for the fact that the pensions were uh, they were operated locally. In other words, you you were you were um, you were interviewed by a local justice of the peace, and basically the, the local uh, local magistrate decided whether you got a pension or not. So, which was problematic because this early early nineteenth century, you know, abolition has really come to the fore, which is really among other things, abolition and the and the and the the, the real entrenchment of slavery was really pushing, you know, race hatred. Um, so. A lot of black veterans, they left great pensions. I can't say a lot, but a number of them left great pensions, but they didn't get a pension in the end, or they got, or they got it very late, or they, or their ancestors got got the pension and they never, they never did. Um, but it was, a, it was a leap of faith because I, I first of all, I had to differentiate the black soldiers from the white soldiers in the pension accounts, and there are th- literally thousands of them. Um, one. One historian called it the, the largest oral history project ever ever undertaken. Hmm. Um, and I wanted to have enough for each state to to have some good stories to tell. And I was pretty lucky in the end. I mean, sometimes it was only a couple sentences, but but there was a lot of a lot of meat there. It was really good stuff. Uh, New Jersey was problematic. Um, I ended up uh, I talked about a lot about just names. Um, but uh, the one New Jersey soldier I found basically had uh, had been an indentured servant. His indenture was so- sold to somebody who took him out to up to Massachusetts, and then over to the West Indies, and then back to Massachusetts. And his indenture ended, so he was freed, and he joined the Massachusetts regiment. And when he joined the Massachusetts regiment, he uh, was in the siege of Boston. He marched all the way. He just missed the Battle of Long Island. He watched the Battle of White Plains. And then he marched back across New Jersey and was involved in the Battle of Trenton, uh, where where he was discharged, and and then uh, basically went back home, um, and then ended up serving in the New Jersey militia for, for the rest of the war. So even though he he wasn't a New Jersey Continental, um, it was it was a it was an interesting uh, story to see what happened to a New Jersey um, free black, indentured at first but eventually free. Um, and like I said, I, I try I try to figure out the numbers the numbers of uh, of, of African Americans in New Jersey in New Jersey Continental Line, probably only about ten, uh, maybe fifteen for the entire war. weren't, weren't very many. Uh, Pennsylvania was another problem. Pennsylvania in the August seventeen seventy eight uh, army, uh, it's, it was called the Return of Negroes in the Army. Uh, we don't know why Washington called for it. Um, I, I would love to know why Washington called for this. It was August seventeen seventy eight? It was after after the Battle of Monmouth, but it, it, the the two Pennsylvania brigades in there, one had no no black soldiers in the brigade, and the other had two. Um, so luckily, one of those black soldiers had left the pension, uh, and he fought from early 1777 all the way. He went from West Point during his military career all the way to South Carolina. Uh, so he fought in all the actions of 77 through through 82. Um, one of his, uh, one of his officers left a, left a supporting account, which the soldiers didn't mention this, but he, he was actually wounded at the Battle of Brandywine in the leg. Um, and, uh, so I fleshed that as, as much as I could. And then I found another, uh, black militia man serving on the frontier. Um, and he talks about, uh, some operations and some pretty bloody operations he took, he took part in, uh, uh, later in the war. 
So even though it wasn't a continental, because I, I wanted to narrow it to continentals, I, I, I wanted to, I had to include that. Um, and then I basically included a list of the names of other black soldiers that I knew that had saved, served in either state regiments or uh, like a few continental regiments. Uh, one of them was Ned, Edward Hector, who, who fought in the state, state artillery of Pennsylvania um, and was uh, lauded for heroism at, uh, at the Battle of Brandywine. He's an interesting, he's an interesting uh, subject because he, in 76, he was probably with the US Navy. He served under Thomas Forrest, who later became, later went to the, the state artillery regiment um, and became an abolitionist after the war. So in 76, Edward Hector was a bombardier. In 77, he was a wagoner. So a bombardier is somebody who could actually command white soldiers. In 77, the Pennsylvania legislature passed their first militia law, which barred blacks from serving in the militia. And I have a feeling it also caused them to be uh, looked down upon in the, uh, in the regular army too, um, and in, in state regiments. And, uh, and I have a feeling that's why he was demoted to, to being a wagoner. Mm -hmm. um, but it was as a wagoner that he, that he that he was actually he performed his his deed at, at Valley Forge basically saved the wagon and, and and took and picked up arms on the battlefield as he, as he was retreating off the battlefield, you know, and saving the team and saving the wagon. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because I mean, we talked about this before before uh, we went on on air. Um, a lot of people don't realize that that there was many. Black soldiers serving in Southern Continental regiments, as there were in New England Continental regiments. Um, you could you could understand New England. I mean, New England, if you know slavery of the period, yes, pretty much every 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 state was a slave state. Every state was, even though in the North there was a growing abolition movement started by the Quakers. Um, there were slaves in all thirteen colonies, thirteen states, but. It was in the South that slavery was really entrenched and large scale, uh, you know, as, as we know it later in the 19th century. But still, there were a lot of free blacks in the South and they accept them into the service. Um, there weren't that many black soldiers in the, in the Georgia continental line. Um, I did find a couple and there's interesting stories. Um, but then again, the Georgia continental line I'm sorry, Georgia, but it really wasn't much to speak about. They they had a, they had a lot of problems. Um, in fact, so so much that they that they recruited soldiers in North Carolina and Virginia to for the for the Georgia regiments. Uh, again, New Jersey was another was another another one. Delaware was another problem, even though there are, I know there were black soldiers that served. I've only found them for later in the war, um, and I'm still I'm still I'm, I'm still. I'm still continuing my research on the subject. I, I'm still writing on the subject and I'm still, I'm still researching on it. Um, barring that, all, all the other states, New England states, um, Maryland, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, I, I got some really nice accounts. Uh, South Carolina, later in the war, you had, uh, there, were, there was a group, of, a group from a certain town in South Carolina and they were, they were mulatto which means they may have passed themselves off as white. I don't know. Um, hmm. But they, they all served in the South Carolina regiments. And later in the war, uh, some of them were captured at Charleston. Some of them went on to serve in, in after the capture of Charleston. And there was a, uh, so, a South Carolina general who basically uh, set up this award that, that, that the, the soldiers who served and signed on again after basically the South Carolina regiments had decimated Charleston would receive a 
a slave in return for their service. Hmm. And, and one of those black soldiers, one of those mulatto soldiers took the slave. Hmm. Um, I mean, and we all know, um, we all know here that there were black slave owners. I mean, you know, there, there were, there were huge numbers, but there were black slave owners. And so it's interesting to see this in that case that, that, that he took the slave and he may have just turned around and sold him, you know, for what he get, get for him. I don't know. Um, there's a, there's a lot of interesting stories. I, I, uh, I wanted to do an, uh, I wanted to do something on black women that served with the army because there were hundreds, if not thousands of female followers and children that were with the army. And, uh, I found a number, one of them, one of them was Hannah Till, who was Washington's, uh, servant. She was actually, she actually, she was a slave. She belonged to her owner was from, New, was, was from New York. Um, but she worked for Washington. She was actually allowed to keep part of her wages and uh, she eventually purchased her freedom, but she had a, she, she had a, a, a child at Valley Forge. Um, so during the Valley Forge, Forge encampment, she was cooking for Washington, but she had a, she had a child during the Valley Forge camp. Um, another one with Judith was Judith Lines, who I, I ended up not very long ago finishing a small biography of her, which takes her from as far back as I could, could take her in her, in her life, all the way up to her later life. Um, and she so she was with her husband in uh, in the uh, Connecticut line for only several months, but during that time she was a uh, she helped her her husband was a servant. Um, she helped her, her her husband serve the, uh, the the colonel of the regiment, but she also caught the smallpox during during her time. Anybody who knows the smallpox, it's a horrific disease. And, and in my my biography of her, I actually I actually have a a, a description of um, what the smallpox experience is if, if you catch it um mm -hmm. so and I, I think marvin wants to uh let's step in here yeah marvin marvin you're on mute buddy <laughs> <laughs> happens all the time <laughs> i got myself so um yeah I'll, 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 one thing i was going to bring up was this uh this idea of uh georgia and south carolina um kind of an incentive to enlist was you either got land or a person um, or people. Um, and uh, there were obviously some African-Americans who um, who did choose to opt for the person. Um, and that's, I think, a, a conversation I think that does come up a lot is, especially when it comes to like, the Lost Cause movement um, of the Civil War era, is that there were Black people who enslaved other Black people, which is true. You can't argue with that. Um, but I think we also lose the context of the time period that people are living in. Um, Every every southern state um, uh, that well, state that practiced slavery, I definitely know um, prior to the revolution. I can't speak with the northern states, but definitely the southern states. Every state uh, passed a law that said a um, a white person could not be employed by a black person, um, or they said a Negro, mulatto, or an Indian. So pretty much, if you were a person of color, you could not employ a white person. They couldn't you couldn't pay them. Um, you couldn't they couldn't be indentured to you. So you only had, um, so if you were free, you, um, you, there was very few options if you were, um, if you were trying to come up and have help outside of your family um, with employment. You could hire another free person of color, which if you were free, you, mean you probably were in that middling class, meaning you had a trade or, um, or something of the, of the sort, uh, which, uh, or you would be, or you were too poor to 
to hire someone. So you, so the idea of hiring someone is going to be kind of iffy because if, especially if you live in a town, a, a, a bigger city, you're probably going to be middle class, a similar middle class, or um, where you may be able to employ other people, um, which then uh, kind of takes out that middle class of individuals. Your other option is to uh, to starve, which means you don't, you're not going to have, you're only going to be relying on your own income. And then the third option is to uh, to, to to buy uh, to buy um, someone. Uh, oftentimes, if if you were the one person, there's a guy named uh, Matthew Ashby who was in uh, who was enslaved in um, uh, in Virginia. Oh, sorry, Matthew Ashby was sorry. He was born free in Virginia. His mother was white. His father was black. Uh, because his mother was uh, was white, uh, he was born free. The the law was the status of the mother determined the status of the child. So. His wife um, was enslaved, his children were enslaved, and he petitioned the Virginia legislature to, uh, he, now he enslaved them, they were enslaved to Matthew Ashby, or he bought, he purchased them from some, uh, from their, um, their enslaver, and they were owned for years um, by him as tech, even though he didn't treat them, I think, he mostly didn't treat them as we would think of an enslaved person being treated. Traditionally, because he, he did not want, uh, he did not want their former enslaver to die in debt and then his his wife and children be sold off. And so oftentimes you, he's an example of people purchasing family members as a way of um, of keeping people safe. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, now if Matthew Ashby had died prior to freeing them, they would, if he died with any debt, they could be sold off. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, he eventually petitions for them to be free. Um, and they get the, they they all gain, gain their freedom, um, but there are instances um, where you do see um, African Americans uh, that are enslaving other African Americans for pure profit, um, because again, if you own if you're a business owner, and you say you're a tavern you're a tavern owner, uh, there's actually a woman in Williamsburg again who um, who enslaved a black woman who enslaved two men, and she rented them out. I, I believe she was a laundress, and so she rented these guys out. Think to the governor's palace to do other jobs there. So again, she's running a business. She can't hire white people to do it. There's, there's uh, anyone who's free in the town who's black probably already has a business. Mm -hmm. So she can either not have that extra income or, um, or enslave other or use the, the system uh, to her advantage. Um, now, does that does that make slavery right or justify it? No. If you're in slavery, if you're not doing a good thing. Um, the only caveat I would say is if you are enslaving your family, you purchase your family as a way of, um, of keeping people safe. Um, however, I think, uh, I think we do have to kind of create that, uh, talk about that nuance of why black people and African-Americans are uh, purchasing or uh, taking enslaved people. Um, it's, I think the lost cause mythology says, oh, if black people were doing that means it was okay. Um, which it's not just because they murder, just because yeah. just just because people murder people today doesn't mean we should all go around murdering people. Um, if it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, and uh, and again, uh, I know we're not getting the the debate on if the, the the righteousness of slavery and the founding fathers, but there were people in that time period who knew slavery was wrong um, and fought back against it. And so I think our uh, the framers of the Constitution uh, they were enough to know what they were doing. Also,
that's that's one thing that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up, actually, is that were some of these troops, uh, black troops that were utilized by, let's say, the, the British or, or uh, maybe some of the New England troops that uh, re had blacks in the, in the ranks, was that seen by some members of white society as uh, promoting the idea of, of uh, you know, insurrection on the part of enslaved peoples? You're arming black people that's going to have a ripple effect. Was that seen in that way in anything that either of you have uncovered over yes. the years? Yes. Um, uh, when, when, when Dunmore um, is still in charge of Virginia, he, um, uh, uh, well, we all, most people know about the attack on Lexington and Concord during the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Uh, that was actually um, happening all throughout the colonies. Um, the, royal, the, the royal governors were all told to take the gunpowder of, out of out of your out of the, where they store out of the gunpowder magazines and and hide it hide it from potential terrorists at the time uh, these, these patriot forces and militias. Dunmore was successful as opposed to the governor of Massachusetts who was obviously unsuccessful in doing that. Um, and he takes the gunpowder out. The the colonists wake up and the Virginians wake up and they're upset. This gunpowder has disappeared. And he, he, Dunmore lies and says, oh, there was a, um, there was a, um, there was Indians that were, that were, um, that were, that could have attacked the town and, you know, there was a potential slave uprising. So I didn't want to, I took the gunpowder to keep it safe. So the Virginians pressed him on it and he says, pretty much if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to free all your slaves and burn down, and burn down Williamsburg. So he's using racial fear, a fear of a rate of race war, race riots, which I think permeates through today um, of uh, these uh, um, of dog whistles that, uh, that that have been that white supremacists use to get people um, fomented. Uh, if you look at the Virginia Gazette and numerous other newspapers, um, you see imagery of um, of black people running away or going to the British or armed insurrections. Um, now, whether those are true stories or not, there's st there's still evidence that people are using this kind of language uh, to 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 instill fear in um, in a in what happens if black people go to the uh, to the patriot side, and what what happens if you don't if the British aren't put down, if you don't join the revolution. Um, this idea of um, black people raiding through the countrysides. Um, savage Indians coming out to get to get you. Uh, I think this idea of, uh, of stoking a fear was was very real. If you if you look at especially the the propaganda and the news the newspaper articles of the day. Now, funny enough, um, even though slaves slaves were largely barred from serving as soldiers in the Continental Army, um, they still served. Uh, they they were barred from serving in Virginia. They still served. So you you had slaves under arms. Um, and, and some of those, some of the slaves did receive the freedom. Uh, even in Virginia in 1783, they were supposed to, uh, if there were slave soldiers, they were supposed to uh, receive their, they were promised their freedom. Um, how, you know, how many did? I don't know. I, I don't know any of the any numbers on that. Um, but I think we're, I think we're, uh, are we coming near near our uh, near our end? Or uh, because there, there's there's something I wanted to say. Um, it's, Go ahead, it's, it's relatively simple, but. 
Go ahead. Um, I won't cut you off. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the Continental Army was a was an integrated army. Um, whether it was done that done that way purposefully, you know, on, on purpose, or or it just happened that way, it was an it was an integrated army through the entire war. Uh, we know that during the War of 1812, there were some U.S. regiments that were that had black soldiers in them, um, but that was probably that was basically the end uh, until Truman's uh, order in 1948, um, which integrated the army again. Even though there was was some uh, pragmatic integration during the end of, to the end of, at the end of World War II, um, black soldiers served served the American cause from the first. They uh, Prince Estes was was wounded on on Lexington Green, um, and black no black Rhode Island soldiers were were discharged in November of 1783, which was pretty much the last time you could be discharged. Even though some troops were discharged in 1780, early 1784, so they they served all the way through the war. Um, there were three black regiments, though, even though the army was largely integrated. There were three black regiments that served: one in the Continental Army. One in one loyalist serving the British Army, and we talked about that already. And then there was the, there was a uh, French, uh, what we now know as Haiti. It was the um, uh, it was uh, formed in uh, Saint Domingue, and uh, of both free blacks and enslaved blacks, and the, and the enslaved blacks were promised their freedom. And they fought. Their first action was the Battle of Savannah. Um, so it's just a it's it's just a really interesting period. It's a really interesting subject. You know, Marvin and I were talking be, be, before we went on air about about you know uh, people know all the ins and outs of the Civil War of all the problems with slavery, you know, U.S. Colored regiments and and the, the Emancipation Proclamation. Everybody still looks at the at the American Revolution as this as this good guy bad guy thing. Um, you know, British British bad, Americans good. Uh, it wasn't that way. It was it's a it's a it's a a lot of a lot of grays it's a lot of grays and there's a lot of interesting stories both um uplifting stories but also pretty horrific stories on both sides uh and i think the most we can do is is to to honor those people who whether they were enslaved and they joined the british army and you know if they were at yorktown and caught Called smallpox, and they were they were thrown out of the British lines because they had smallpox, and basically left to die. We need, uh, or, or they, you know, they served in the Dun, or the the, uh, the Dunmore's regiment, or they served as a common soldier in the militia or the or the Continental line. We need to recognize all those stories. Or if there were a, a woman or a child following following the army, um, we need to honor all those stories and uh, just hold on to all the ones that we have now and try to dig for more. Um, it's it's a it's a really little known aspect of American history, and they really deserve recognition for what they suffered and what they contributed, uh, you know, to to the country or to you know to to the world. Mm -hmm. I I agree I agree with John. Um, although the stories aren't highlighted the way they should be, um, these men and women who served on both sides both in the in official military capacities and in civilian roles in the um in the, in the military whether they served with the british or they served with the americans whether they served with the hessians or the french um i think that these stories are american stories their their voices weren't heard at that time or valued at that time but we as um as the generations that have inherited their legacy as our it's our duty to 
uh, to tell their stories and to make sure that they are remembered, mm -hmm. um, sometimes by name and sometimes by action. Uh, one of my favorite quotes um, of the of the time period, because you were asking about the kind of this juxtaposition, um, and I love that it really echoes the complexities of the, the time period. A British a British writer um, named, uh, named Dr. Johnson says, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps of liberty from the drivers of the Negroes? Hmm. And so then during this time period of America, um, of America uh, demanding its independence and freedom, um, people of that time knew that there was this paradox that was going on that, um, and I think that's, that speaks to who we are as Americans. Um, we were founded on uh, amazing ideals. We were founded by imperfect people who, um, who just like us, had imperfect feelings, had imperfect ideas, um, and had their own baggage they were dealing with mm -hmm. at that time. Um, and uh, I think it's it's for us not to hide behind that story and make it seem that these people were, were bigger and greater than they actually were because they, just like us, got dressed very similar to us, how we get dressed today. They had very similar thoughts and beliefs. They wanted to have their children grow up in a prosperous uh, future. They wanted to have um, the best for their, for their ancestors and their kids, just like us today. Now they may, they obviously the technology is different, uh, having people of different races in an open forum like this discussing um, is different, um, but the, the same ideals and hopes and dreams, I think regardless of people's politics of the time, I think we're, we're similar, uh, wanting to create a better, a better future for, for for themselves and their families. Um, and so I think we can learn a lot um, by studying actual history um, and not sugarcoating it and, um, and highlighting the, uh, the complexities of, of this era. Uh, John mentioned the regiment the, of Saint-Domingue uh, from Haiti that fought. Those, uh, those veterans not only um, helped free America, but they went home to Haiti and helped free Haiti using the same ideals of the American Revolution. And so those ideals of the American Revolution did not just stop on our borders, but they can be seen echoing throughout uh, throughout the world, his throughout world history. Time and time again, um, countries, including Haiti, uh, Poland, and others, have used the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence as, um, as a basis for why they are seeking independence um, of their own. Um, and I think that that goes to show the genius of the words, not the people, but the words that were pinned down, that all people are created equal. Um, and it's for us human beings to actually um, try to put those words into actual action um, in the past uh, political party or, uh, or color, race, sexual orientation, or gender identity um, to make this world a more uh, safe um, place. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> uh, uh, I, that was the reason why also, uh, gents and everybody watching, it's the reason why I wanted to have this as close to July 4th as possible. So we mm -hmm. can consider this idea of freedom and, and such. What is it to a certain person compared to someone else? What was it like for, for the people in John's book compared to uh, someone who looked like me on the line and then someone who 
uh, was was a black soldier in the line too. What was freedom to each of them, and uh, what is the legacy of that question going forward to this very moment in our lives? I think that's very important for all of us to consider. Uh, I did place a link into the comments of John's book. Uh, again, fantastic, John. Thank you so much for for your thank hard you. work because this this opened my eyes a lot more. Uh, to this story, and I know that you're working on other things uh, of the same vein. I'm so appreciative of your time, Marvin. I'm so appreciative of you as well. Uh, you've opened my eyes as well as a historian, and I'm so thankful for your friendship and John, yours. And uh, I'm just really happy to have both of you on to talk about a subject which has uh, been sometimes put to the side or forgotten and uh, it's time to have it's just due and i think this is just the tip of the iceberg and i, I thank both of you for your time tonight uh, thank, thank you, you. and one uh, and one thing for the uh, for the viewers uh, if you are interested in hearing kind of a first-hand account of what um what the fourth of july meant to african americans in during a time period of enslavement um, please look up in um, the speech given by Frederick Douglass on July 5th, 1852. Yes. Um, it's, called, um, it's called, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? And it is an amazing speech. Um, Frederick Douglass was obviously an amazing orator. I wish I was there to actually hear him say it. But it's <laughs> a, uh, if you don't feel like um, like uh, reading it, you can see, you can, re you can hear people reciting it on YouTube, like James Earl Jones and Morgan Freeman. Um, but it's a it's an amazing amazing speech. Yes, it is. And, it and is again, appropriate appropriate for the for for where we are right now. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so everyone, please go grab a copy of John's book. Please follow Marvin as well, Mag the Historian, on all the socials. Please please go give them a follow. Uh, again, fellows, I really appreciate your time tonight.